Hi, welcome to Chatting to a Friend. I'm Katie Friend and in this podcast I'm chatting to incredible women about their life experiences and adventures as well as their thoughts on friendship, community, self-care, setting boundaries and how they keep healthy, happy and sane. Dee Kafari MBE is a two-time world record holding yachtswoman. She is the only woman to have sailed single-handedly non-stop around the world three times, including once against the prevailing wind and tide. In total, she has sailed around the world six times, learning about grit, determination, the extreme effects of sleeplessness, as well as leadership, trust and communication. She is a huge advocate of getting more girls into the sport and encouraging them to take her titles. Hi Dee, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, pleasure. So you are in the south of England just now, a little bit locked down, but uh, you were just telling me before we started that you have been excited to see the Vendée Globe head off this uh, last couple of days. Oh, that's right. I mean, what a perfect example of the perfect answer to self-isolation by being a solo sailor sailing for the next few months around the world. And it brought back a lot of memories and I feel that I was virtually there with them. So I'm really looking forward to sharing their race from the comforts of my own home, but uh, trying to live through every wave and wind shift and uh, disaster and happiness along the way. Because it is quite, well, I mean, I read your book and it is, I am a fan of adventure stories, especially girls on adventures. And this was just absolutely, I mean, what a roller coaster! because as I said before in my intro, you know, it's not just once, not just twice. You've been around the world six times, three of them on your own. What is it about that that just keeps taking you back? There's something very special about being on the sea and out in the open ocean. And I genuinely love being out there. And I, it seems strange sat in the comfort of the warmth of my home that I'd enjoy being cold, wet and tossed around by Mother Nature. But it's that challenge, that taking on anything that Mother Nature throws at you and having to be resourceful and resilient and find your way through it. What at the same time that you're trying to get the best from yourself in performance and the best from your boat in performance. And, and I genuinely really enjoy that. Extraordinary. And so when you took to this as a young teacher, I mean, you'd been on boats and sort of messing about on the water quite a lot throughout your childhood with your family, but you hadn't had the sort of traditional sailing background when you took off for the first time. No, not at all. I mean, most people imagine that if you're a successful ocean sailor or around the world sailor, that you probably grew up in dinghies and slowly your boats got bigger as you you got bigger and your experience grew. But I literally didn't do that. I was at ballet lessons doing good toes and naughty toes and at tap (laughs) lessons and did a very different kind of childhood. I used to watch fame in the evenings and, you know, dream of that kind of life. Then I went and did sports science as a degree at university. And I majored in outdoor activities because I did have a love for the outdoors and sailing became part of that. And I thought, that it was an environment I really enjoyed and I liked that no two days were ever the same. It wasn't repetitive and you were being constantly challenged and it must have stuck with me. And I went and qualified as a teacher and spent five years teaching, but then did the big career change. And it was probably prompted or encouraged by 
a conversation I had with my father just before he passed away. And I used to be very easily led with exciting things that I used to see. And I'd be, oh, I'd like to do that. And eventually he just said to me, you know, are you going to talk about it? Or are you actually going to go and do it? Because pretty soon you're going to be too old. And it must have just resonated and stuck there and festered over a bit of time. And uh, it encouraged me to make that critical career change that led to a very exciting and very fortunate. I consider myself very lucky to have had some wonderful adventures and a career as a professional sailor. When I read that in the book, it struck a chord with me. And we are exactly the same age, by the way, because you're nine days older than me I noted when I checked out your <laughs> your book so you know because I we, so we're 47 and even at 47 that struck a chord with me thinking yeah you're right there is just so much of the time we talk about doing stuff I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this when the kids are older when this has happened when I have the money when I have the time and one of the things I love to talk about and do is 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 sort of base have a bit more adventure in life and so I just loved the fact that somebody you know and specifically your dad said that to you when you were young enough to actually go hell yeah I'm gonna sail around the world but I, I mean I don't think I had the idea to sail around the world at that point but I think even now if you take the year 2020 it's been such a turmoil for everybody and it's affected every single one of us but I think it's a massive kind of smack in the mouth to everybody of what are you waiting for because life is really precious time is really precious you need to make the most of it while you can and I think this year's really taught us that that actually waiting for because it's really easy to make excuses Mm. as you said oh when the children grow up or I'll, I'll just save some more money but you might not get the chance to enjoy it after you've done that little bit of waiting so what's stopping you I think it's should I think this year's really kind of galvanized in me that if you want to go and do something then maybe engineer your life so that you can I quite agree because I don't think I would ever actually have launched this podcast if I hadn't if you know we hadn't had that sort of massive downtime during lockdown we had only I had eight weeks with the kids at home which I know is not nearly as long as a lot of people but just that sort of it almost felt like quiet time to just sort of think right what what is it that I want to do and so I quite agree I think there's so many people I follow so many people on Instagram and social media and friends who've just said right now's now's the time there's no time like the present that's right and I and I also think that um with people having that time we so rarely get that time Mm. in our constant lives that are instant messaging and connections with everybody all the time that when you give yourself time and space to think, it allows you to reevaluate. And I think people have really had that opportunity to think because a lot of us are having to adapt and overcome and possibly reinvent ourselves because what we knew before coronavirus doesn't really exist anymore for some. Exactly. So many of my friends and peers are, you know, working from home when they were traveling and, you know, putting in so many hours just to get to where they had to work. And I don't just mean an hour on the tube. I mean, sort of flying all over the place and and that sort of thing, including my husband. And it makes, I think it's, it's giving us more time as well, because people that had to get up at six or fly the day before are now just getting up at eight in the morning and starting work. That's right. And I think a lot of us are 
adapted to wearing our slippers for Zoom calls really well. <laughs> exactly. I had originally intended to film this and I thought, no, I'm just not putting people under the pressure <laughs> of having to put on a pretty top to go with their pyjama bottoms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so true. Um, so then, so you, the first around the world that you did, you took a crew and you were the first female skipper in the, or the only female skipper in that particular race around the world. And you faced quite a lot of challenges shall we say you lost uh, you nearly sorry I beg your pardon you nearly lost a crew member um you had to battle with your own demons of can I do this can I lead a crew around the world for a very long time a group of very disparate people characters indeed I had no real control over who signed up to do that race it was such a Blythe's global challenge race and he had been a massive inspiration to people when he set off to do what was called the impossible voyage. And I was unaware of how much influence he was going to have in my life as well. But uh, I became one of his skippers on his global challenge race where 17 people paid for the opportunity to have this adventure of a lifetime. And I was the professional skipper on board managing that. And we were in a fleet of 12 boats, identical boats, with the professional skipper on board and the 17 paying people on board. And I stepped up to that feeling a little bit out of my depth because it, it's a whole, it was a whole lesson on man management, conflict management, and actually ultimately learning about myself. And obviously, when you have 17 different people there for 17 different reasons, there's lots of different things and scenarios that happen and you have to manage all that whilst trying to still perform and meet requirements for sponsors and uh, aspirations for all the crew members. So it was quite complex. And I often joke that that's probably what led to me going solo around the world afterwards. <laughs> Indeed. And when you did decide to go solo, it wasn't a huge amount of time afterwards. It was only sort of you left four months. You only had four months on dry land, I think. Is that right? That's right. We finished in July and I set off again that November and I had the call to confirm that I was going to go from a sponsor in September. So it all happened super quick, but I think that was probably a saving grace. It didn't give me too much time to dwell on what I was about to embark on. I kind of went ahead with it and hadn't really had time to mull it over and think it through. And when you, you talked earlier about Che Bly, Sir Che Bly, obviously being uh, one of the impossible voyagers, there are still only five of you? Is that That's correct? right. Four guys and myself. And yes. tell tell me what tell me for those who may not know what the Impossible Voyage is. Tell us what that is. So that's solo, non-stop around the world, westabouts, so against the prevailing winds and currents. So due to the Earth's natural rotation, all the winds and currents flow in in one direction, and I decided to sail the opposite way. So we laugh because you basically spend your time. For those that don't sail, you spend your time zigzagging. Uh, trying to make your way forwards uh, against the wind. So you spend a lot of time sailing in completely the wrong direction, which is quite demoralizing. You cover probably three times the distance. Wow. And if you were to stop and have a rest and do nothing, you actually go backwards. So you really can't afford to do that because you just prolong the agony. And that's probably why there's only five of us that have chosen to do it. <laughs> I mean, that's absolutely extraordinary. Only five people in the history of the world. I find that absolutely what an incredible achievement. So it's 178 days on your own with a, did I understand, a 72-foot boat? Did I get that right? 
That's right. Yeah, 72-foot boat, 42 tons of steel. It's a big boat, but it was built for purpose, so I had absolute confidence because it was the exact same boat that mm. I'd done the year before with the crew. I just took the 17 people off and then worried about <laughs> how I was going to deal with it. And I re- I mean, I as I say, I, I love books that talk about solo adventures. I'm a big uh, ocean rowing fan as well. And what fascinates me from... The, the small amount of endurance stuff I've done, which is m- minuscule in comparison, is the isolation, the roller coaster of emotions. And, and as you put it, the, how much you are affected by sleeplessness, because in my case, tiredness makes me insanely stupid. Um, <laughs> um, what do you get asked the most about in, in sort of that when you I, I know you do lots of speaking and and talking to young people what what do you talk about most about the lessons you learn from those things I think the biggest thing that people ask or try to get me to explain is how you can still keep pushing yourself on when you're Mm. the only one there when you are cold wet tired or you've had enough or you know how do you pick yourself up because so often we rely on an external influence somebody else Mm. to give us a nudge or take us for a cup of tea or you know have a have a piece of cake and you'll feel better or mm-hmm. just you need that sometimes that little boost from an external person and when you're on your own doing something as silly as sailing around the world you have to find that from within and that resilience is quite hard to tap into sometimes mm. and i think i'm pretty level headed and easy going but i have been told that in order to do what i've done there is an element of stubbornness and uh, <laughs> determination steely determination in there and I, it's one of those things, if I commit to something, I do want to complete it. I will see it through. And if people have invested time and effort and dedication to help get me there, then the last thing I'm going to do is give up because it's too hard. I mean, presumably at some stage, at many stages, you have no choice. You're just so far from anywhere. I think in your book, I read that at one point, you, your closest neighbour was the International Space Station. That's right. In the South Pacific, um, you're at a point that's the furthest point from land, and it's called Point Nemo. And hilariously, the closest person to you is in the International Space Station, which <laughs> always makes me laugh when you're kind of happily sailing along around the world. But it, it is a case of life and death. And when you're on your own, you're the only person that can sort it out. And when some things are pretty bad and you think, oh, I really want to cry about this, you actually have to wait for that emotion because that's actually not going to help you at the time so you Mm. deal with everything and then you almost have a little kind of weep afterwards in relief uh, and then go oh that was quite bad but I had dealt with it and I feel better now and so I mean when I finished your book obviously I was I had been on a roller coaster of emotions with you and I was thinking oh my goodness that's so amazing but of course that was almost just the beginning of the rest of your adventure because that was 14 years ago. That's right. That was lap number two. Exactly. Um, so there's been a few more since then. I know. And so I have counted that, um, well, after that, you ran the London Marathon. And I'm pretty sure you did it on the same day as my husband's because uh, it was 2007, I think. That's right. Then you were awarded an MBE for uh, being with that for being the first solo woman to go the wrong way as it's uh, sort of slang, I guess. And then I've got the Vendée Globe which you've just seen off in the last couple of days. That was your next round the world challenge. That's right. So I kind of learned that everybody goes the other way around the world. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) I thought that was something I should consider. So yes, 
I went from being an adventurer taking on a an adventure and a challenge to mm. I think that was the transition to being a professional sailor where mm. suddenly I joined the best sailors in the world and took on the ultimate event of sailing the right way around the world. So as we went down the Atlantic on the first um, first part of the race, the the sailor that actually went on to win the race sent me an email and he said, don't forget to turn left. I think they were all <laughs> worried that I was going to go the wrong way again. And what was the difference uh, in that you say there's a leap between being an adventurer into being a professional sailor? I mean, was there a, uh, presumably there had to be a little bit of a confidence leap, but d- did you think, because it's, what a third of the time approximately yes the difference right is incredible but it was the the speed I think as I went down the Atlantic and I did that first turn to the left under the Cape of Good Hope and suddenly went in the same direction as the wind and the waves the boat accelerated and I was thinking whoa how do I slow down <laughs> and I think it was the realization then that this is what the boat's designed to do and this is what it's all about and actually I just have to hang on for the ride so it took a little bit of a transition. And was there a difference in um, the mentality now that you were, so you were in a race, uh, you were now a professional skipper and you're, it's faster, presumably things happen more quickly. Was there a big difference in the mentality? I think the difference of, you know, when it goes wrong, it goes really wrong really quickly mm. is in the back of your mind. And you you don't have that, that grace of oh well I'll I'll just do that after I've eaten something or I'll just do that I'll do that sail change but I'll do it in a minute it's mm. a case of you know, everybody else is pushing so I need to do the sail change because I know everybody else is doing it mm. and and you're pushing and it just ups your level ups the intensity and it's quite funny that actually since then my sailing's progressing all the time that if I could have the opportunity to go back and do it again I know I would be better at it amazing and I read it in the book but how do you sleep like I know it's catnaps but you you when you're going that fast that you know hard hard with ev- you know everybody else is in, in the same pardon the expression in the same boat <laughs> it, it, well precisely and it, the sleep thing is something you have to learn to adapt to mm. and when you're close to shore or you're close to a weather system or a something that's going to change or affect your sails you you can't really have any sleep you've got to be ready for it because you're the only one there to do anything about it so it's about picking your time and your place and sometimes you get the opportunity to have great sleep because everything's very consistent and the boat's sailing well and you can relax and enjoy it a bit more and they're the times where you can have a sleep and maybe get up and check stuff and then maybe go back to sleep but there's other times where you're still in your full fowlies with your boots on ready to go and you've just closing your eyes for 10 minutes while you can before you have to leap into action again and you you get in tune with your boat so that you Mm. listen to the sounds so I call it sleep but I think it's more resting because you're still listening to all the noises that you recognize and so that you know when something sounds different that you're going to have to get up and deal with it because as I said before a lot of the decisions you make are life and death decisions because it's either going to Uh, fix the boat or you're going to damage something or something's changed that you need to adapt to and so it's really important that you do react to the changes but it's amazing how quickly you can adapt I think it takes the body about seven days to adapt Mm -hmm. to a new routine and I liken it I don't have children but I do liken it to 
new mothers or new parents that before the child came along, you managed to sleep through the night, absolutely no problem whatsoever, didn't hear a thing. And then suddenly you have some another life in the house that's your responsibility and you can hear them breathe. You hear every turn or movement they do and you react to every sound. And that pretty much goes on to when they're 21, convincing <laughs> you that they came in at midnight and you know it was three o'clock in the morning. It's that inane ability to adapt and be responsible for, for a life. It's extraordinary. I was actually just going to say that because I am a mother of two. And as soon as I had kids, my sleep patterns were never the same again. And I thought that about that when I was reading your book and the sounds, because as I say, I've, let, I've read a lot of uh, ocean crossing books as well. And it's that the listening that sort of the becoming one sounds slightly beardy weirdy, but that bond between you and the boat that I find absolutely extraordinary. I mean, I grew up riding horses and there's a similar sort of thing with with a horse, but I think it just sounds almost in a way quite magical that you recognize all the sounds, all the, almost the emotions of the boat and the weather around it. Definitely. And I think that relationship is really important to deliver. And as it grows, you get better at sailing, you get more confident Mm -hmm. and you get better at sailing the boat. So quite often when you sail around the world, how you sail on the leg back up the Atlantic towards the finish line is probably a lot more aggressive and a little harder than you sailed when you set off originally. So I also, so then after that, you came back around and that was you, you had set another world record and that you were the first woman to do be around the world solo nonstop three times. Is that correct? Yes, yes, that's right. And the only woman still to go both ways solo, nonstop. Extraordinary. Uh, any any pretenders in the offing? There have been a couple of uh, people talk about going the wrong way around the world, but they've never kind of brought the project through to fruition. So, I mean, I'm all for it. I think uh, the record's there to be broken quite happily. And I'm quite glad I did the wrong way first because now I've gone the right way. I probably will never go the wrong way again. <laughs> And then, so you went from team to solo, and but then you've done quite a lot of team stuff since. You've taken an all-female team. You broke the round Britain and Ireland. Your own, you broke your own record, didn't you? That's right. And actually, one of the sailors on the record where we did it first time, I sailed with Samantha Davies, who's currently doing the Vendée Globe. Mm-hmm. And then she was skipper for Team SCA when I was part of that team, the all-female team, where we broke our own record again. So it's been really nice to have the record with some some of the same sailors. Amazing. And what is the difference to you? I mean, obviously, there's a lot more help when you have a team on board. But is there a bigger difference between being on your own and being in a team? I think the big difference for me is when you're on your own, you have to be you're doing everything so everything is your responsibility everything's under your control and everything is because of you so there's no blame culture because it's all on you and therefore you get to celebrate the good bits because you've nailed it and you get to be frustrated at the mistakes you've made because there's no one else to blame but yourself But whether it's from trimming a sail or looking at the weather and making the call of the strategy it's all you and when you go to a team the intensity can rise because what you've got is everybody's got a responsibility and collectively if you all fulfill your roles to the best of your ability you're going to have a really good high performance team 
but I, I find the transition sometimes a bit frustrating when I just have my one job and I have to I have to trust on everybody else mm. to do their job and there's nothing wrong with them it's just that transition is sometimes hard to do because you so naturally go to do everything or cover everything or be aware of everything that uh, you need to build that confidence and trust in each other when you're with a team so that you do trust the other person to fulfill their role so that you can do your role. And do you often get asked that in terms of how to translate that into the workplace or into other sports teams? Are you, do, you, do you help people with that? Yes, and there's been a really big growth. My last project, so my most recent round the world was leading Turn the Tide on Plastic, mm. which was... Uh, a mixed team, youth focus, 80% of my crew were under 30. Really good sailors, but hadn't gone around the world before. And we were racing in the ocean race, which is a hugely competitive crude race, but you stop at various Mm -hmm. stopovers. And so the legs are a bit shorter, but the intensity is probably much higher. And actually leading that, Team SEA stood me in a really good place to then lead that because I'd learned quite a lot from being part of that team. The frustrations I felt as a sailor, that then as a leader, I could be more empathetic to my Mm -hmm. team and try and kind of allay any of the mistakes that I saw made or that frustrated me to try and create a better team environment. And the takeaways that I really um, took on board and have used translating to companies and businesses when they've talked about you know how do you lead a good team and how do you create the team that can deliver and it was all about getting buy-in and buying into agreed objectives and outcomes Mm -hmm. and then spending the time putting the right people in the right position so that you play to your strengths while still identifying any weaknesses because although you want to play to your strengths you still need to overcome any weak areas that you have and that's where you have to develop that trust with each other where if somebody's weakness could be somebody else's strength they could be a really nice combination to work together and it's just understanding people's strengths and weaknesses and getting that bond together as a team the other thing that I really worked on with my guys was having giving them ownership and responsibility so they felt that they were contributing and being valued Mm and um being part of the conversation not being dictated to and i sometimes the debriefs and the briefings took a lot longer but the the payback you got from that investment was so worth it and the development i saw over a 10 months you know the people i finished the race with were definitely not the people i started the race with so i felt really proud of that and do you feel like you learned as well even though you had previously learned that you you know you added even further to your own leadership skills Massively, massively. And the big thing for me on that was that you can't micromanage everything because mm. sometimes you just think, God, it'd be easier to just do it myself. Yeah. <laughs> but you have to allow people to make the mistakes and learn from them and grow from them and actually even just set them up so that you can then just nudge and encourage mm. and nurture to get the best from them, not allowing them to make the mistakes and having that confidence to be hands off and entrust the others to do it just allows you to do your job better because you just don't have the time and the capacity to micromanage everything and do the role that you have to do as well. And is it an easy transition when you are telling corporate groups this, for example, for them to grasp, you know, because life on board, as you said, is quite frantic. It's quite intense. It's quite full on right now. Things need to be done and done well. You know, it can be a matter of life and death. 
because that's not always the case in a corporate setting. It's not, but the scenarios and the frustrations are often mm. the same. But, and it all normally comes down to communication and um, being valued, being listened mm. to, not only heard, but actually listened to. And that's all in the communication sphere. And that's most of the breakdowns of most of the issues that people have. So the issues are all very similar and do really compare well. But obviously, my environment on a boat is it's almost heightened because, as you say, it's, you know, Mother Nature doesn't allow you to have the meeting next week. You've got to have it there and then. <laughs> yeah. And with regards to you had a mixed crew and that's the first time that had been the case. Is that correct? Am I in that particular That's race? right. So all the boats ended up being mixed, but they all had just two girls with seven guys. Oh. And I went fully mixed five and five that hadn't been done before. And well, I just think it was actually a really nice environment to be in. I'm very lucky. I've done a lot of sailing in a mixed environment and mm. it is hard work. Sometimes it's a very male dominated sport. You know, there I was. My first race around the world was 2004, as we discussed, with me being the only female skipper in 12. And here I was in 2014. No, what year? 2017, sorry. Mm. Again, being the only female skipper in a group of seven. So the life hadn't really moved on that much in our sport. We're a bit slow in that respect. And is that something that you have found frustrating? I think I can hear a little bit of frustration perhaps in your voice. <laughs> it, it is. The thing I'm frustrated about is that it is changing, but it is so slow. Mm. And I think we talk about there needing to be role models and you've got to see it to believe it. And I think that we lack that sometimes, but there are some some changes happening and the the ocean race is one of them where they you know, mandated the mixed rule which allows the girls to get the experience to then move on mm. and this one day globe that left on sunday is doing just that for the first time we've had six girls on the start line out of 33 competitors mm. which is amazing because to date in the, all the editions of the race we've only had um six girls finish the race oh my word right so this is like a huge transition and hopefully a sign of things to come so I'm very hopeful but it's just frustrating how long it takes to make change happen and what is it is it the old classic you know it's a bit too grubby and dirty and messy and whatever for girls and so they don't get encouraged at grassroots level or what is it what do you think it is uh, there's an element of our sport being a little bit of a old boys club mm -hmm. where because I'd say at grassroots there's a pretty even level of male and female participation mm -hmm. and what we struggle with is retaining the girls in the involvement in the sport and I think sometimes the choice of boat is a bit too limiting and I think if the environment that we're in girls at that impressionable teenage transition it's really hard for them to know what sport they want to stay in and when you go to a sport where you can't necessarily use a bathroom because you're out in the middle of the water and everyone's looking at you mm -hmm. and you don't really want to get your bum out to wee over the side it's an environment that doesn't really encourage them sometimes yeah. all that transition where you know oh god we've got periods to deal with yet I'm sailing in an environment where everyone in the officials are all men and I really need to go ashore and use the bathroom, but they're not going to let me, so I can't tell anyone. So it's just an uncomfortable environment that we put them in. Yeah. And I just don't think we've been sensitive to that yet. So we just kind of need more females in those 
organizing roles, the official roles, and seeing the broad spectrum so that the girls understand that it is an environment they can cope with. Yeah, I was uh, chatting to a guest last week who is a sports lawyer, and she was talking very much about this. She was also a sprinter in her youth and talking about the trying to retain girls at that crucial age of just, you know, puberty and life being all a bit awkward and, 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 and strange. So it's not... You're not the first of my guests to talk about that, sadly. Um, what I wanted to ask was, what do women bring to the sport of sailing that perhaps men don't? I mean, I know in a lot of sports, there's a lot more, there's a lot more finesse because quite often physical strength cannot be replicated by a woman. But I'm just interested to know what perhaps women bring to the sport that men don't. Or do less of, perhaps? Or you know. Yeah, I, I think we need to be honest with the physicality of it all. And sailing's a very physical sport, and we're never going to be as strong as the guys. Mm. But you look at these girls sailing exactly the same type of boats out in exactly the same weather on the oceans, doing the same jobs. And it's just a case of being a little bit clever. Mm. You don't have to have brute strength as the answer to everything. Quite often, you can afford to have a little bit of um, savvy navvy you know kind of decision making allowing you to be clever with something so we might change a sail a little bit earlier yeah. because it's out of in conditions when we find it physically a bit easier but actually the boat speed's not going to drop and we've just saved us giving ourselves a hard time there's also a point to remember that when you're on these boats there's so many roles to fulfill and not all of them are physical yeah some of them are, you know, you need a navigator, you need a strategist, you need a helms person, you need a trimmer. And that's not all the people that do all the heavy lifting. So I think there's a really nice number of jobs that allow a mixed team to play to their strengths and get the best out of each other and do a great job. And in your 50-50 mixed team, uh, did it work well? There was a good team effort between the men and the women. I was super impressed at how good they were with it. Uh, and a few times we fell foul of what we were trying to achieve. And that was massively what I saw as a confidence issue for the girls. Mm. That at some points, all the boys would be holding rope in their hand, doing a very important job trimming. And all the girls would be on the handles, winding things or moving 100 kilo sails. Mm. And I was like, hold on a minute. Are we really got the strongest people doing the right jobs here? And everybody would stop and have a look and realize that yeah. they'd naturally gravitated where their confidence levels lay. And it right. was just that I had to keep reminding them every now. We had to kind of remind ourselves not to fall into that trap. But um, I was really impressed. And I think having a younger crew helped with that. They were really open-minded, mm -hmm. really valued each other's strengths and opinions and worked really well You know, in the whole. There's always going to be some issues. But that's what happens when you spend 10 months with just 10 people in a very intense environment. But I think overall it was impressive. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who works in a very male-oriented industry. And she was talking about how this very much younger guy had come to work. And the, the sort of difference in attitude between this young man sort of in his late 20s, early 30s, and the sort of older generation she said it was quite extraordinary there was a much more bigger a greater understanding of equality 
between men and women than they're necessary. I mean, I am gen- she was generalizing massively and she knew that, but she just felt it was quite extraordinary to come across a man of a younger generation who just saw it as quite normal that women were his peers. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think for me, having the younger crew, it was about being open-minded to new ideas and they would literally sit and within 48 hours of the end of a leg, they would have looked at everybody else's, all the other boats, all their photos and videos and looked for all the things they did differently and then come back and they'd be like, can we try this? We should do this. And this boat does that. And I was just like, fine. Yeah. You know, I needed to be really open minded. And the deal was we'd try it. And if it made us go faster, we'd keep it. If it didn't, we wouldn't. Nice. And so it was about me being open minded and it was about them kind of learning together. So having that environment I had to create an atmosphere and an environment where they both felt empowered the girls Mm -hmm. and the guys and they shared the responsibilities so I I didn't want just the girls to do the food and the boys to do the winches (laughs) so I made sure you know there was a girl on the winches with Mm -hmm. one of the guys and just to kind of make sure I created the right atmosphere and environment for them to flourish in but their attitude is is very different. And we had a very distinct message to give about mm. sustainability. We were called Turn the Tide on Plastic. We were racing under the UN Clean Seas Initiative. And I was like, oh, here we go. Now I need to kind of explain the messaging. And I didn't need to do anything because it was actually a genuine communication they wanted to give. They were fully aware that our generation had created quite a lot of their problems. Yeah. And they needed to help create the change so that their children would inherit a better planet. And I was just so proud of them. But it was a really nice synergy. And that's why I think the project worked. Extraordinary. And talking of which, can you tell us a little bit about, tell me a little bit about what the the single-use plastics, that was your mission? Yes. So if you think of environmental issues or sustainability, the messaging is very confusing because the subject area is so vast Mm. and people struggle when there's so much information going out there what to grab hold of and our concentration was on turning the tide on plastic which was about single-use plastic use and changing people's behavior and relationship with it and it worked I think because every single person interacts with plastic every single day And quite often, we all have a choice to make. There's a decision at the counter of whether you buy a plastic bottle of drink or a can. Or if you have, you know, oh, no, I'll remember my water bottle and then I won't Mm -hmm. need to do that. I'll just ask for a refill. So there's all these decisions that we can make in our everyday as a consumer, how we live. And I think because it resonated with everybody on an individual level, people were getting the message. Mm. So we just talked about saying no to straws and just being organized, having your refillable cup, your refillable bottle, being organized with your food choices and how you chose your food, whether you took time to sit down and eat off a plate rather than take it away in a plastic container, making sure you had a bag. Um, So really simple things, everyday actions that everyone could do trying to kind of bring that message home. And I think it communicated on a level that we were you know far beyond we did a lot of beach cleans around the mm-hmm. world but our our actions and the way we lived I laughed because I said oh at the end of this you know I'm just going to go to a train station and buy loads of snacks and <laughs> food and just roll around in the plastic wrappers afterwards but actually at the end of a year I couldn't do it mm. I just could not do it and I think my messaging to all my friends and peers in the short term even they've taken it on board and just 
decisions that you make now in my shopping and our habits are changing because we're well no I shouldn't do that Mm. I should do this and okay we're going to do this now and I think just when you've got a bit of time like this lockdown and coronavirus environment has given us you can change some habits and make a big difference and we think it's not going to make any difference at all but there's seven billion of us or eight billion Mm. of us all making those decisions that collectively can have a big impact. Yeah, and I, I think I heard you interviewed or saw something you read, um, you'd written about, you know, we didn't think we could make a difference, but now nobody, almost nobody takes a plastic bag at the supermarket. We all have bags for life in the back of the car or whatever it might be. And the straw thing, it, it, you know, in France now, I think it's illegal to sell single-use plastic forks and cups and all that sort of thing. So what what do you think might be the next one of those sort of to go in in your dream scenario from all the work that you've done on it what would you you know the bags the straws yeah so the interesting thing is those actions that we influence are I think we've done really well on as you say and it's just habit changing Mm. and now I think we need to realize the impact we can have as consumers Mm. on the manufacturers I go shopping now and you look along the road and you're just like why can I not buy this not in plastic Mm. you know where's the other option and quite often the other option is more expensive which means that it's prohibitive for people to choose and I think we need to use our power as a consumer to change that you know change our fruit and veg so it doesn't have plastic with it make sure that the cans the multi-buy things are not trapped in plastic make sure that the choice when there is one isn't more expensive so that people can make the right decision because we all want we're all conscientious consumers and we all want to make the right decision but sometimes people can't afford the option quite I quite agree and I um, because of the pandemic and you know we were in quarantine a few weeks ago and I've done a, a, a little bit more online shopping as in grocery shopping and I have been absolutely horrified I mean horrified by the amount of plastic that comes on the stuff that is sent out to a home that I would normally use my sort of reusable bags for fruit and veg and that sort of thing and so while on one hand I'm saving you know driving my car to the supermarket and all that sort of stuff environmentally I'm now bringing home or I'm being delivered to my home this insane amount of plastic packaging. I know and it's so wrong isn't it that those choices are causing more problems because you're right in on one hand we're doing good and on the other hand we're not it's I think there was an analysis in some supermarkets a wide variety of them where you could choose to buy four loose apples and it was almost twice the price than buying four apples in a plastic pack Mm. and you're just like this is just crazy yeah how can the plastic wrapped ones be cheaper (laughs) you know and that's I think we just really need to keep pushing and demanding more as a consumer because they are trying to change Mm. it's just the chains the huge chains are slow yeah and you know the size is, is right but I think if we can shop local and if we can align ourselves with brands and companies that are trying to do better um it will have to make the others conform in time Good. Well, we hope so. And I think you you said earlier a little something that twigged with me about it's quite overwhelming to choose, you know, because you're so we we know it's going wrong. But I think sometimes, as you say, you just pick one thing to do. Yes, I, I think that that clear, concise communication 
makes it easier because and everybody's got an argument to counter argue what you're trying to do so as soon as we talk about well how electric vehicles and charging points and making that more accessible then somebody will discuss with you the chemicals used to make the batteries and their you know their life cycle assessment and it's just like okay we've just got to start start from one point and then we can like look at all of them because we can't solve everything in one go no so I just think if we can make your focus quite simple it makes your actions simple and that's a step in the right direction and then maybe in the next three months you look at something else and you change your habits in that and you make a difference and slowly slowly we're we're kind of expand our impact and hopefully changing changing things for the better exactly and talking of the future I hear you have a very exciting new goal in mind sailing goal um heading to Paris in 2024 is that correct well, it seems like a very long way away at the moment. But yeah, I've got some aspirations. So in the sailing world, they're going to introduce a new event in the Olympics of uh, mixed offshore sailing. Mm-hmm. So the boats will be up to like a 30 foot boat, uh, two people on board, a, a girl and a boy. And you sail for three days, three nights. It's about 600 miles and uh, basically the first one to cross the finish line will win mm-hmm. and they're going to try and hold that at the olympics so it's going to be interesting because it's in marseille in 2024 mm-hmm. and marseille being in the med will be either not a lot of wind or an awful lot of wind so um, <laughs> could have anything going on at there. least you don't have the tide to deal with that is true and the water <laughs> will be warm so that will make a difference and so you actually when you say 600 miles is, is it sort of around and round and round and round and round or there's an out and back or well they can control the course depending on the the weather so Mm. that we can cover the distance and try and control the finish line Mm. uh, to a certain extent so we're not really sure of the course but any islands that are out there have a massive local wind effect Mm -hmm. and so it'd be quite technical but um, as a result this summer I've started uh, double-handed sailing with a young lad from the UK and had a lot of fun sailing because also in COVID secure environments, it's a really safe way to sail. So long gone are the days where we saw boats with 15 people sat on the rail hanging yeah. over the side. That's that's not really permitted anymore. So double-handed sailing seems to be a safe way to do it. Great. And so you will be, if we are allowed to talk age, which we are in this day and age, you uh-huh. will be, uh, as my good self, will be in the 2024-51. Um, and that's that's a, a good age for going into the Olympics. I've just, I was just quickly Googling events you could get into in your later years sailing was not one of them though <laughs> well I think we can change that yeah I I'm think willing to change that prove them wrong well the nice thing with the offshore sailing so long as you're fit enough to perform with your boat it takes a little bit of experience as well so mm. I'm hopefully bringing that angle and obviously I'm working hard on my fitness because the challenge is on then from younger fitter people that mm. want to prove their points so uh, it's good encouragement uh, to keep me on my toes and uh, keep me performing Excellent. Do you think you've got another round the world in you solo? Well, I genuinely love it. So I would never say no. Um, Obviously, with all sailing campaigns, it takes a lot of um, fundraising to make Mm. happen and sponsorship and partnerships. And in this current environment, economic environment is pretty tough. So uh, that's always the hardest bit. Getting to the start line is always the hardest bit. The race is the enjoyable bit. (laughs) Amazing. Dee, thank you so much for your time it's just 
oh, it's just been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, I love the adventure. I love the practical side of it. I love hearing about how uh, the sort of lessons from the boat and the isolation can translate into real life. And I wish you all the very best for your Olympic hopes. That's very exciting. Oh, thank you so much. It's been really lovely to talk and talk about, as you say, all the diverse influences in my career and uh, what I've been up to and how they translate. So um, I hope I've entertained, if nothing else. Oh, absolutely. Well, certainly me and anyone else listening. That's a bonus. (laughs) (laughs) Thank Thank you. you so much and take care. Thanks for joining me. I'll be back next week with another incredible episode of Chatting to a Friend. In the meantime, please give us a follow on Instagram, Chatting to a Friend, for all the latest news. Bye-bye.